Welcome to Trafe, a debatably Jewish podcast. So David, I was wondering what you thought about changing the tagline of our show. To what? To Through Fire and Water. Through Fire and Water? Yes. So the Trafe podcast Through Fire and Water. Yeah, do a little appropriation of a conservative tagline. I think it could be interesting. I think that conservative tagline is actually an appropriation of some biblical passage. That is very likely. Um, This brings us to a very important issue that has been raised by several listeners, including many members of my family, and it has to do with the question of tone and people's inability to decipher whether we're being serious or not. Really? Like, when do they think that? The focus has been principally on the Shkoyach segment, but I think that because there's an uncertainty in the Shkoyach segment, I think people become relatively uncertain in other elements. Okay, well, what do you think that we could do to fix that? I don't know. I mean, we could identify when we're being sarcastic or not, but that might be a bad idea. That's a good idea, I think, maybe. We will try to be a little more overt with when we're going over the top, I guess. Um, so issues of tone aside, there is something that happened last week that me and Sam wanted to address on the show. Yep. It happened on Wednesday the 23rd, which was the day of Yom Kippur and the night of Eid. Basically, an organization called BDS Quebec, which is a coalition group, had been putting up signs, election signs, for people who aren't in Canada. There's an election happening right now. We're very big on signage. Uh, All candidates can put up signs, and if you are running as a candidate, you can put up signs of any kind. And so basically, BDS Quebec has been putting up a bunch of posters that asked the politicians what their opinions are on Palestine. And they were accosted the previous Sunday by a group of folks in Utramal who were trying to take the sign down. Yeah, and in wake of this confrontation, which was fairly violent, BDS Quebec organized a demonstration in Utramal outside of Thomas Mulcair's office, both to push the NDP on their position on Palestine, but also to rally people around the idea that they should be able to put up these signs to begin with. Uh, the Canadian Jewish News and Montreal reporter Janice Arnold was quick to write a piece. She called all of the political parties and all of the bureaus roundly condemned these posters. There were some critiques of the event that were coming from people on the Jewish left in Montreal, specifically around the fact that the event was organized on Yom Kippur. There were several other critiques as well. And the way that these critiques manifested themselves were in the form of comments on the Facebook event that was organized by BDS Quebec. And what ended up happening ultimately was a crescendo of opposition to this event from both conservative activists like Sija, the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, as well as these leftist Jews based in Montreal. And the biggest thing for me is that I think it's legitimate for Jewish activists to question the strategy of holding an event on Yom Kippur. The problem for me is the way it was done and the way that the feelings of Jewish activists ended up taking precedence over the strategic organizing of Palestinians involved in BDS Quebec. Yeah, and like as someone who myself is a white Jew on the Jewish left, I had critiques of this event as well. But if we're legitimately involved in a project of solidarity, when people who we are supposedly in solidarity with are experiencing repression, that's not the appropriate time to join in in the chorus of voices condemning this group. 100%. And all of the condemnation, both from right-wing Zionists and from Jewish leftists on Facebook, resulted in the event being canceled by Facebook.com and BDS Quebec canceling the event and mobilizing attention towards campaigns they have going on, like putting up these posters. So if folks want more information on BDS Quebec, go to bdsquebec.ca. 
Yeah, and, and and I think that the dynamics that were at play around this particular event are not distinct from the dynamics that occur around a lot of Palestinian solidarity events that Jews on the left are attempting to be in solidarity with, where we kind of bring our critiques and bring our anxieties and our worries to the fore of the discussions regarding those events. And I think that if we are going to be engaged in a project of long-term solidarity, we can't be consistently prioritizing these discussions in these spaces. I think that we as Jewish leftists need to get better at this, and I don't think we need to practice it in public in this way. Yeah, just to add a little more nuance to this, I think it's fine for people to have these feelings and to have these opinions, but it's where they're expressed and where they end up taking up a lot of space. Anyway, that said, we're going to move on to the rest of the show. So, David, who do we have on the show this week? So we have Sozan Savahalaji on the show, a member of Known as Illegal Vancouver, Coast Salish Territories, uh, to talk a bit about the new Never Home resource created by Known as Illegal that outlines changes in Canada's migration policies. So it's back to school time, and so we decided to have a special campus edition of BDS Watch Watch. For those who don't understand that joke, BDS Watch would be a way that a lot of the Jewish media would talk about Palestinian solidarity activism going on campus. So in the United States over the past year, a lot of money and focus has been put into the push on campuses against the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. A new organization has been created called the Campus Maccabees with $50 million behind them. Hillel had its first all-staff BDS training last summer. The Jewish National Fund, which already gives $9 million a year to campus advocacy, is now adding five, and it's going to be giving more each year. The Jewish federations are diverting millions to this. It's, it's becoming a focus of Israel advocacy in the country. And how this information is being conveyed is interesting because on the one hand, there's a message of everything's all right, don't worry. The BDS movement is marginal. Palestine solidarity activists are marginal. And then on the other hand, there are all these groups popping up and all this different money being allocated to fighting it. So it's a kind of don't worry about it, but we're focusing a lot on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we're seeing this here too. A lot of this money is starting to come north with the expansion of Hillel in Toronto to a provincial structure. The Hasbara Fellowships organization recently hired its first Canadian director. David, what, what is Hasbara? So Hasbara is an Israel advocacy organization. There have been a few chapters on Canadian campuses in the past, but they've been autonomous and operating independently. But in the United States, there's a centralized structure for what's called Hasbara Fellowships. They recently hired their first Canadian director, and they're going to be expanding centralized chapters onto campuses across Canada over the next year. In the Canadian Jewish News article about this hiring written by Janice Arnold, there was literally the contact information for this fellow, whose name is Robert Walker. So at the end of Janice Arnold's article, which was basically a press release about this hiring, she said, if you want to get in touch with him, here's his email, which normally doesn't happen in standard journalistic practice. It's definitely something that the entire institutional Jewish community seems to be behind. Robert Walker said that over the next year, he hopes to have 25 campuses across the country receiving money from the Hasbro Fellowships Organization. So it's definitely indicative of where things are going here. So like I said before, it's interesting because on the one hand, there's this concern. There's we're hiring new people, we're beefing up uh, training resources and ways of countering this on campus. And then on the other hand, you have articles like Paul Lungeon's article in the Canadian Jewish News last week Hillel and Sija say situation has improved for Jewish students. Yeah, and the thing is that it's kind of correct. Uh, to give you a bit of context of how things have been changing over the last year in terms of the fight on campuses in regard to BDS, following Concordia University's successful introduction of a pro-BDS motion last year, there's been an intense push and a lot of money spent on preventing this from happening. 
In January of last year, Trent University's Student Association passed a motion revoking a previous policy adopting BDS. At the University of British Columbia in March, the student government voted against the BDS measure. In the same month at McGill, the Student Society voted against the BDS measure. And then in April at the University of Regina, the Students' Union repealed a BDS measure passed the previous year. Now, this year so far, just this month, the University of Toronto, the Student Union Board of Directors voted against bringing a motion in support of BDS to their annual general meeting. So yeah, David, one thing that I think is relevant to point out is that the success of BDS as a tactic in solidarity with struggles for liberation in Palestine looks like it is gaining more traction across Canada and the United States. It's true. It seems like the institutional Jewish community has realized that the campuses were the site in which a lot of these ideas took root and spread. Like Israeli Apartheid Week started at U of T campus. Yeah. A lot of a lot of the ways in which BDS has emerged as a successful tactic has been situated on campuses. But in terms of the Canadian context, we're seeing a bit of a restructuring as well. You're seeing Hillel, which is a campus Jewish organization, completely prioritize the issue of BDS. Half of their 20-person organization in the Greater Toronto area are now working specifically on Israel advocacy and nothing else. And they're supporting other Hillels around the country and doing the same thing. There's also the revamped Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs website that has an issues section. And there is a tab focused particularly on campuses uh, under, under the headline, Concerned About Campus, So Am I. So David Cape, the uh, CEO of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, published an article on his own website and talked a bit about the strategy that they viewed as being successful for fighting BDS on campuses. It had three different sections to it. And one of the three points was focusing on faculty rather than students. They've formed something called the Canadian Academics for Peace in the Middle East, which is a Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs affiliated body of professors that has provided support to a lot of students around the country confronting what they call anti-Israel attitudes on campus. The part that I found the most difficult to read was the ways in which David Cape, and I guess this happens across the board, but uses the, the language of safety. And this ties into what we were talking about earlier about BDS Quebec, where somehow Jewish feelings take precedence in this context. And David Cape and the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs is exclusively concerned about Jewish students feeling comfortable, quote unquote. Yeah, there's a lot of appeals to issues of comfort, of issues of safety. But when you look at the reality of how these battles are playing out on campus, it's it's a bit disproportionate. Where for specifically at McGill, you had buses bringing in students from Westmount to uh, hand out flyers and give oranges that were supposedly grown in Israel to people who are voting on the BDS measure before they're going inside. You had thousands of dollars spent at the University of British Columbia just on posters. Where on the other side, you have these grassroots student groups who are just mobilizing with as many people as they can find. And beyond that, you have increasingly, you have a national pro-Israel infrastructure that's descending onto every campus debate around issues of BDS who are outspending the opposition and are appealing to their institutional connections. You had city council in Montreal actually coming out in opposition to the BDS measure at McGill. You had articles written in the Montreal Gazette. And part of David Cape's series of strategies that he outlines on his website is creating long-term relationships with university officials, flying people to Israel, creating institutional links between people at the university and pro-Israel groups. So this is increasingly becoming a centralized effort by the institutional Jewish community. In the last few months, there's been an increased discussion about migrants from Iraq and Syria, and the institutional Jewish community in Canada has taken their own position on this issue. 
the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs has a page on their website called Refugee Crisis, How You Can Help. And the rest of the community, or at least institutionally, has taken a similar line. Yeah, there have been a series of uh, synagogues across the country who are fundraising to try to sponsor uh, individual families coming over. It's a very difficult process. And part of the reason this process is so difficult is because of changes to migration policy that have happened over the past 10 years, directly supported by the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. Yeah, it's very complicated, but at least to attempt to try and parse through it a little bit. The current government, which we don't want to exceptionalize, has basically aimed towards precarious labor as opposed to any form of immigration status. So the number of people who were permanent residents was, for the first time in 2008, less than the people who came as temporary workers. Yeah, and the Jewish community knows full well about this history of Canada's exclusionary migration policies. Since we were one time a target of this same policy, between the period of 1933 and 1948, when Jews were attempting to migrate to Canada, they were turned away. For anyone who has an elder Jewish relative and who has talked about this period, the phrase none is too many, which was actually uttered by the prime minister at the time, Mackenzie King, and is something that is part of how the Jewish community understands its place here. So I think there's like two general responses coming from the community. And one is, we don't care about immigrants. Why are immigrants coming? Which is ahistorical. And then the other one is equally ahistorical, but has a more liberal bent to it, where it argues that we should support the refugees, but in no way acknowledges how Canada and Israel creates those migrants. Yeah, and before wading into this uh, back and forth between the two elements within the Jewish community, one disproportionately more powerful than the other, there are a couple of things that when talking about migration on trade podcasts, we want to make sure to mention. The first is that Canada is a colonial state, and as a colonial state, has no legitimacy in making decisions regarding who comes in and out of this territory. The second is that while the Harper government has definitely transformed migration policy as it existed over the past 25 years, that the racism inherent within Canadian society has always been reflected within its migrant policy. The realities that have come out of the Harper government's transformation of migration policy have resulted in huge amounts of migrants being detained in terrible conditions indefinitely. It's resulted in mass deportations. It's resulted in a lot of people who are here without status now struggling to get by and to access services. And this entire situation is occurring as a result of Canada's participation in perpetuating and benefiting from the factors that create displacement globally. And of course, none of this discourse makes its way into any element of the Jewish community discussion regarding migration. Yeah, and so the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs has another tab on their website called The Refugee Crisis, How Can You Help? And there are three options. The first two seem kind of normative. One of them is sponsor a refugee, which is a very individualized solution to a collective problem. And the second is donating to the Red Cross. The third option is slightly more out there, and it involves a partnership that the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs has established with King Abdullah of Jordan, which I have to say was completely out of left field, and I am entirely surprised by. This is not sarcastic. I'm being serious. Yeah, so after receiving a lot of pressure from the Jewish community to take an active stance on this issue, the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs has essentially done everything they can to not change their position on migration. The Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs have been a steadfast supporter of the Harper government's exclusion acts. And in a situation where public opinion is in favor of taking in a large amount of refugees, the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs is just telling the Jewish community, if you'd like to help refugees, give money to the Red Cross. Give money to Jordan, give money to us, but don't ever push us on our position regarding keeping these refugees at bay. 
Yeah, the other thing that I wouldn't expect Siege to address is the fact that Canada and Israel, through explicit bombing campaigns, are creating a lot of the migrants that we're talking about in, in this particular context. And there's a lack of recognition on the ways in which refugees become refugees. So two years ago, because the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs and the rest of the leadership of the institutional Jewish community were in such lockstep behind the Harper government in reducing the amount of refugees that it accepted into Canadian borders, elements of the Jewish establishment created a new organization called the Jewish Refugee Action Network, or JRAN. So members of this organization condemned the ways in which the institutional Jewish community was so supportive of the changes that Harper's conservative government had made, making it much more difficult for refugees to gain status in the country and just generally changing the whole system of immigration. So for the Center of Israel and Jewish Affairs here to come out in the context of what's being described as a refugee crisis, presenting itself as somehow in solidarity with these migrants, that saying that they're helping bring in new migrants by, you know, helping people fundraise to sponsor or to send money to Jordan or to send money to the Red Cross is completely absurd because these are the people who have been blocking refugees from coming in, who have been supporting exclusionary acts. And for those of us in the Jewish community who hopefully have a bit of a longer memory, I think it's incumbent upon us to call out these elements within the Jewish community for representing the same political tendencies that block Jews from entering Canadian borders. We're entering the point of the show where you might not be able to identify if we're being serious or not. So brace yourself. <laughs> it's Shkoyach time. For those who are listening for the first time, Shkoyach is basically a segment where me and David highlight or point out an event or a person or a thing that we would like to give congratulations to. However, we occasionally do that sarcastically and have more of a condemnation type segment. With that being said, um, we're going to jump right into it. Try to be a little conscious of tone, although David doesn't want to be, but I will. Um, and yeah, so David, what, what is your shkoyach for this week? So I actually have an anti-shkoyach this week. It's a phrase that you coined last week, Sam, and it's essentially the opposite of a shkoyach. It's a condemnation. This anti-shkoyach goes to an article written by Uriel Heilman for the Jewish Telegraphic Agency with the headline, Will a German welcome of refugees come at Jews' expense? The article is essentially an interview with as many racist Jews as Uriel Heilman could find in Germany, who talk about how they don't want any migrants coming in because they don't like Arab people. Oh. Um, there's a quote that says, they're worried that the influx of hundreds of thousands of Muslims will turn Germany into a place hostile to Jewish concerns and to Israel, and that along with the migrants, there are terrorist infiltrators who will try to realize their dreams of jihad on German soil. I'm not exactly sure how to deal with this one. I mean, there's just the question of why this fellow chose to write the article. The other point is, it seems somewhat interesting that Jewish folks who are living in that particular country are expressing that particular concern. Well, uh, in the article, he takes pains to note that Jews aren't the only ones with deep reservations about newcomers, quote, even resentment toward the migrants. Many Germans also share similar concerns about terrorist infiltrators and how Germany might be transformed by a massive influx of Arab and Muslim migrants. Huh. The German context and the North American context aren't the same, but what it, it kind of makes me think of the ways in which white Jews are so incorporated into white supremacy, you know, like that it's like, look, even Jews can be part of this xenophobic, racist 
what was that word that Harper used this week? Um, old stock Canadian. Old stock Canadian or old stock German in this case, where it's like we're so, or white Jews are so embedded in this that we can have the same kind of uh, racist animosity towards migrants. Yeah, we read a lot of the Jewish press for the show, and there's a lot of racist articles that we come across. But I just have to say that this article achieved a level of xenophobic racism that was actually notable for the Jewish press. So to be clear, the anti-Shkoyach goes to Uriel Heilman. Yeah, it, throughout the article, he maintains a tone of some Jews think this, some Jews say this. And it's not his first article with that tone. He He's following up his very successful article from a few weeks ago, where the headline was, some Jews have divined the real cause of Jimmy Carter's cancer. And you'll be surprised to learn that it's due to his anti-Israel positions, according to the article. But just again, some Jews think this, so it's newsworthy. Yeah, it's it's that old, that age-old kind of Fox News. I'm just saying it. It's not my opinion, but I'm just putting it out there. So Ante Shkoyach goes to Earl Heilman and his series of headlines reporting what some Jews think. So Sam, what's your Shkoyach for the week? My Shkoyach is a positive Shkoyach, but it is in jest. So there's a degree of sarcasm here for anyone who needs clarity. The Shkoyach that I'm giving out today goes to one Cheryl Degani, who is, according to the New York Post, a 59-year-old accountant from suburban New York City and a mother of two adult children. So what, what, what did she do? Now, Cheryl and her two dogs, Shadow, who is a 16-pound poodle, and Custer, a 26-pound schnauzer, all collectively fasted on Yom Kippur. Wait, where is this article, Sam? The New York Post. And the New York Post went in depth as to some of the reasons why the three of them fasted together. Are you a regular New York Post reader? Post and Daily News, I am. So basically, Cheryl's major argument was, and I quote, I have to fast, so they have to fast. (laughs) I mean, this kind of sounds like making your pets vegan. Yeah, it was interesting. They even went so far as to call in a veterinarian. And ask the veterinarian if the dogs, if it was like legitimate to have the dogs fast on Yom Kippur. So wait, is your shkoyach to the dogs or to the woman? Oh, 100% to Cheryl. It's to Cheryl who decided to starve her dogs for a day. That's pretty messed up though. And the dogs had no idea. Why? I think that like, I know this is a, a, a shkoyach in jest, but it just reminds me of all, like you've been reading all that stuff about the protest against the Hasidic community in New York for the Kapara stuff. I saw it, but could you maybe describe to everyone uh, what so, you're talking about? Uh, there is a ritual that's practiced differently in different segments of the Jewish community called Kapara. And some segments of the Jewish community, particularly the Hasidic community, actually throw around chickens in a torturous fashion and then kind of just chuck them out. As you can imagine, this violates quite a few animal cruelty regulations in quite a few cities and states. And because there are sizable Hasidic communities in a lot of city and states. There have been negotiations to allow for specific exemptions for religious freedom. And in New York, there was a conflict around this recently where there are animal rights protesters that were confronting the Hasidic community. And there was a whole debate. It was in the Jewish media quite a bit. It was in the mainstream media a little bit. And um, maybe this woman was inspired by reading the Daily Forward and seeing those husses on the front with a chicken in their arm. I'm actually going to defend Cheryl here. I mean, not that I don't think you should feed your pets if you have pets, but I don't think that Cheryl's actions are the same as uh, Kapora's. Touche. Or there's one last quote from Cheryl that I think is relevant to this tale. The journalist is inquiring as to why you would subject fasting to the to your two dogs if you you yourself are jewish and that's fine and you choose to participate but why would you impose that on your dogs excellent question and she answers that i that she thinks that they have a jewish essence she says there's no doubt about it they know that they are in some way jewish sam yeah that's stupid (laughs) 
That's so stupid. <laughs> well, Cheryl is imposing religion on two animals who have no consent in the matter. That's not religion. It's, it's starvation. Yeah. The veterinarian said that the dogs missing two meals wasn't a big deal. These kind of stories are like the dream of the militant atheist, kind of Richard Dawkins crew. Which I would like to take a public service announcement out and say, F those people. Specifically, their Islamophobia, which is extremely pronounced. Actually, let's take this opportunity to condemn the new atheist movement and suggest that perhaps they do have a religion after all, and it's a religion of the Western secularist state. See, I agree. Um, I think this is where people get confused as to what our tone is, because now we've transitioned into a legitimate condemnation of a group of people whose worldviews we generally don't agree with. Yeah. So, Sam, are you certain about this, Shkoyach? You have to, like, you can take it back. Oh, no, my, my shkoyach goes to Cheryl Degani, 59-year-old, New York City accountant. All right. Okay, that's shkoyach for today. So we're now joined by Sozan Savahalaji, who is a member of No One Is Illegal Vancouver and Coast Salish Territories and is a former refugee of Kurdish descent. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I was wondering if you could start off talking a little bit about the Never Home multimedia project that No One Is Illegal has put together. Uh, sure. So the Never Home project uh, showcases videos and graphics as well as narratives of people who are at some point within their immigration process. The project has been going on for quite a while now. No One Is Illegal here in Vancouver on Coast Salish Territories does a lot of support work with refugees and undocumented people, um, and we support people through their immigration processes in whatever way we can. And what we've witnessed over the past several years is a lot of legislation changes that are making it almost impossible to support people. And so we really wanted to document it. And so we've been working on this for, I'd say, about a year now, and really wanted to create a multimedia multilingual, more accessible way of people taking in the information because it's actually quite a lot of information. Just to give you an example, over the past 10 years, there's been over 100 legislation changes within immigration in Canada. And when you compare that to the past 100 or so years, there's only been about 19. So it's, it's a complete overhaul of the immigration system in a way that endangers refugees, undocumented people, migrant workers, and we really wanted to give a platform for people who are going through these situations to speak about their story. I was just wondering if we could move back a little bit um, to talk about the ways in which the immigration system and questions around migration have shifted in the last 10 or 15 years. Absolutely, I can talk about that. The, the one thing that I need to mention is that I know that a lot of people think that Canadian immigration system has historically been very, very good. And comparatively to now, in the 1990s, for example, it was a very different story. I, I myself and my family came here in the 90s, and we definitely didn't face the level of discrimination that people face today. However, when we go back further in history, we know that Canada is actually founded on very xenophobic foundation. So when we look at the treatment of Indigenous people, the land theft programs that are continuing on today through colonization, we look at the Kamagata Maru, for example, 
here on the coast of BC, where refugees from India were sent back essentially to their death and they weren't even allowed off the boat that they came on. Um, we look at the Japanese internment camps. The list goes on. There's a lot of history within Canadian society around racism and exclusion of newcomers. So, you know, we have to put it in that context and that this is a continuation of that. But in the last 10 years, like I said, there's just been an incredible amount of changes. And one of the things that we're seeing is a pattern towards more temporary status for the majority of newcomers. Less citizenship is being granted and less refugees are being accepted. And because of some of the legislation, a lot less folks have access to applying as a refugee to Canada. So all the numbers for citizenships and permanent residents have decreased, and what we're fighting, finding is a skyrocketing of migrant workers who also have faced quite a few changes to legislation that affects their stay here. So, for example, now there's a four-in, four-out rule where uh, migrant workers are only allowed to stay for four years, and then they're banned from coming back to Canada for another four, which effectively is going to cause the largest mass deportation in Canadian history, where upwards of 70,000 migrant workers are facing deportation. So that is the most, I think, the, the broadest way of describing the general change in Canadian immigration. Um, and there's a lot of little things that are just incredibly violent that I can talk more about, specifically around refugee detention um, and deportation. Yeah, that'd actually be great if you wouldn't mind talking a bit just in terms of migrant detention centers and what people face when they're in that context, if you could explain to listeners what that means. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's been really concerning is the government's insistence and boldness in getting in front of national media and characterizing refugees as terrorists or as security risks, which is actually quite dangerous in the sense that it does actually shift public opinion around refugees. And the legislation that sort of followed this pattern of disparaging refugees was one that mandated that refugees who came to Canada by irregular means, and that can mean a variety of things, including coming here via boat, people who come in groups of more than five, there's something around not having specific documents that identify you. Um, so those people who come here, and often they're the most vulnerable because they've taken these extra measures, often very dangerous to get here. Those people are put into detention for up to 12 months. And it, it, it doesn't matter where you're coming from. It doesn't matter if you have children with you. So children are also put into detention for up to 12 months. Um, we saw this, the best example I can give you is the Tamil refugees who came on the MV Sansi a couple of years ago. There's about, I think, 400. The vast majority of them were detained, and some of them for upwards of one year. And so it's pretty horrific to see that kind of treatment of people who have already faced so much trauma, often escaping violence, to then come here and be, and be put into jail. So that's our treatment of refugees here. A lot of refugees, like I said, are having a, a much more difficult time applying for refugee status. So a lot of lawyers who do refugee law 
are just finding it incredibly difficult to represent their clients because the timelines are ridiculously short, like 15 days to gather all your documents and present them at the Immigration and Refugee Board hearings. We're also finding that the safe country list, which is what the Canadian immigration system deems as a list of countries that they don't believe are refugee-creating countries. And places like Mexico are included in that, as well as places like Hungary, where we know there are actually quite a few refugee claimants from those places. So those people face even shorter time frames. They also don't have access to appeals of their refugee board decisions. So, you know, we can talk about what we're doing here to refugees when they do get here, but the Canadian government actively prevents people from applying for refugee status. I was mentioning Hungary, for example. The Canadian government put in quite a bit of money to install billboards in Hungary, discouraging people to come to Canada to seek refuge. We sent people back to deport people back to places where there are moratoriums, including places like Palestine. So we're we're going in a in an incredibly dangerous direction, and. One of the things that we've been talking a lot about is how this sort of heightened climate where we're all talking about the refugee crisis, there needs to be much more conversation around the legislations that have been passed and how to revoke those legislations because they're, like I said, um, very harmful. Uh, You know, people have been really open-hearted and looking at ways of sponsoring people. But they're just not, it's just not going to really create a dent in this crisis unless we repeal all these legislations and then force our governments to accept a lot more refugees than have been promised by any of the political parties. Yeah, and just just speaking of Hungary a bit, I know that we've been seeing a lot of media coverage of Syrian refugees trying to gain entry into Europe, uh, being confronted at the Hungarian border, German border, Austrian border in different ways. Um, Can you talk a bit about the ways that countries like Canada and other Western countries are situated in this crisis of migration that's happening right now? Sure. The vast majority of displaced people globally right now are actually from the African continent, as well as other places and areas that have military conflict. So when we're talking about refugees, I know Syria is on a lot of people's minds, but I think that we also need to be looking at places like Eritrea, Somalia, Palestine, as well as Central and Latin America, Mexican refugees, particularly who come to Canada. I think that we need to broaden our scope and look at the reasons why there are refugees that are coming from all of these places, but also to not buy into the sort of single issue, single place fixation that the media has been promoting. In terms of the complicity of the Western world, Europe, Canada, Australia, the U.S., we really have to look at our military operations in the region, as well as the involvement of these states in the arms trade in these regions, really heightening the conflicts that are existing and at times are fueled by these places, by the U.S., for example. We know that Canada has an active military operation in Syria, A lot of civilians have been killed due to Canadian airstrikes. I think the number is around 1,000. Homes are destroyed. 
it should be pretty obvious. Infrastructure gets destroyed. People don't have access to the, their basic needs and just can't sustain a life in those regions. And so they migrate and so they seek refuge in other places. You know, the, the crisis isn't just that people are fleeing. It's also that they're being prevented from accessing safety. And so it's a two-pronged thing where you're destroying this land and people's homes. And then on the other hand, you're preventing them, literally putting barriers in front of them in terms of accessing safety. And we found that with the story of the tragic death of the Kurdi family, where the family member who was here, Tima Kurdi, said that it was impossible to put together the application that she needed to put together for her family to get here and that one of her family members had already been rejected. And so I think one is to really look at Canadian complicity in these areas in terms of military operations, as well as providing arms or selling arms in the region. And on the other hand, it's also to look at how we're essentially banning and excluding these folks from reaching safety by coming here. We heard Prime Minister Harper say something about accepting 10,000 refugees and just to be clear, this is the same number that the Canadian government has always promised to take in. And it's not on top of anything that we've already committed to. And also the money that they've put forward is going towards, I believe the quote is towards refugee accepting countries in Europe or to match donations from charitable organizations in Canada who would sponsor people. It's generally been the way that this government has operated is to just sort of skirt the issue to create a lot of fear and a lot of scapegoating when it comes to refugees and just sort of heightening this public hysteria around people coming and taking over, I, I don't know, taking over Canada and stealing people's jobs, which is incredibly xenophobic and quite, quite dangerous. With that being said, could you describe a little bit of what No One Is Illegal has been doing to resist this, both kind of outside of the defined borders of the state and within it? Well, we regularly support people who are going through deportations or are in detention, whether it be by just raising public awareness, doing actions, or supporting somebody through their legal process. So on an individual level, that's what we do individual case-by-case -case letter. I think one of the things that have been really important for us in the last little while is to just in some way bring together everything that is happening so that people can have that information, are able to take in that information in a way that makes sense, and to really understand the gravity of the situation. You know, we're an all-volunteer group of people. A majority of us are immigrants or former refugees, migrants, mostly of color. And so we also work within our communities to bring attention to these issues. So really looking at how these colonial capitalist projects of the Western world is creating uh, mayhem in our home countries. Canadian companies in Eritrea and Mexico who are decimating the land, who are subjugating the people, who then have to flee the area. Canadian military operations in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Syria, that's creating refugees. You know, within the Kurdish community, I know it really hits home because 
A couple of years ago, we had another death within the community here in Vancouver of a Kurdish gentleman whose refugee claim was denied based on admissibility, and he was incredibly scared of being deported back, and he committed suicide because it was just not a tenable situation. It was impossible for him to imagine himself to go back. We're seeing the threats of this system. In a real way, people are being deported back to their deaths. We also had another death in custody of Lucia Jimenez, so really working around bringing the truth out within a coroner's inquest, the responsibility of the Canadian Border Services Agency in that death. Doing a lot of analysis is something that we do at No One is Illegal events, panels, really raising people's voices so that it's not just a narrative of the politicians or the experts or the academics or the lawyers, but actually the voices of undocumented people and refugees and migrant workers that people are hearing. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So that was our interview with Sozan Savialaji from No One Is Illegal, Vancouver, Coast Salish Territories. I would like to urge anyone listening to check out the website neverhome.ca and read and talk to people about it and share it with friends. Yeah, and for people listening to the show from Toronto or Vancouver, you can get involved with No One Is Illegal, who does a lot of migrant justice organizing work based in both of those cities. There's also the End Immigration Detention Network that addresses a lot of the issues brought up in that interview regarding migrant detention here. And also in Montreal, there's an amazing group called Solidarity Across Borders that does a lot of on-the-ground migrant justice organizing work here. And for people living in Montreal, you should check out the Immigrant Worker Center. A lot of great organizing happens there as well. Yeah, so those are our recommendations for today. Trafe Podcast is Sam Beck and David Zinman. We would like to extend a huge thank you to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we recorded today's episode in the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganegahaga territory. Thank you to our director of design, Claire Hertig, and to Sax Syndrome for the music that you heard on this episode. All articles we've referenced can be found in the episode notes. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr at Trafe, T-R-E-Y-F, or send comments and suggestions to trafepodcast at gmail.com. More episodes soon. I'm surprised that Bernie Farber hasn't come up with an op-ed in response to this. This is his Isn't time Bernie to Bernie Farber dead? No, he's not dead. <laughs> <laughs> what? I thought Bernie Farber was dead. What you said? I, th- I said I thought Bernie Farber was dead. He's not dead. We sent him an email. You send them an email. On the, on the email list. <laughs> Actually? That's fantastic. Just because the Canadian Jewish Congress is dead doesn't mean that Bernie Farber is We should have sent an email to uh, Irwin Collar.